So this morning we uh, begins what is traditionally considered the first Sunday of Advent. Uh, Advent is a season where uh, we, the church, historically, traditionally focuses on the coming of Christ. Now the truth of the matter is, any Sunday would be a good Sunday to focus on the coming of Christ. But of course that means this Sunday is a good Sunday to focus on the coming of Christ. And so we uh, typically uh, take the Sundays in, in uh, Christmas leading, or Sundays in December leading up to Christmas to have an Advent series. This year our series is focused on texts that talk about the coming of Christ, the promise of Christ. So we're looking at four texts in the Old Testament that point us forward to Christ's coming. This also gives us an opportunity for uh, various people to, uh, to teach, to preach this morning. So uh, this morning, um, our very own ruling elder, Daniel Thies, is going to be preaching from Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. Well, good morning. Uh, as Luke said, my name is Daniel Thies. I'm an elder here at the church, and uh, uh, it's my privilege today to speak to you about the first of the four passages in our Advent series uh, that point us to Jesus from the Old Testament. And this passage is Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. Um, and as the title suggests, uh, this is God's first promise to the first sinners. But for context, let's start reading in uh, I will start reading in verse 7 up through verse 15 of chapter 3, um, but before we do that, let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this morning. We thank, thank you for the opportunity to hear from you and to hear your word. Um, I ask that you would be with me as I exhort the congregation. Um, please bless this message that you would use it to your purposes and for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, if you know me and my family, you know that I have five kids, uh, Edward, Peter, Samuel, Mary, and Pippa. Um, and I want to share a little anecdote with you about Pippa that I think might help kind of illustrate something about the message today. So Pippa, on the first day that she was born, while we were still in the hospital, um, had such a sort of exuberant personality that I turned to Paige, and you, my wife, and you can verify this with her afterwards, and I said, you know what? She just seems happy to be here. Now Pippa's one and a half, uh, and in fact, I can see that that part of her grow is growing, and that she is still, in many ways, just happy to be here. And I don't doubt that, God willing, that aspect of her personality will continue to grow as she matures, at age 5, 10, 15, and even on into adulthood. But at one day old, still in the hospital, we saw a preliminary picture of her personality that gave us some sense of what was to come in a sort of vague and indistinct way. And this picture, I think, helps us understand how God's revelation works over time. As you go through the Bible, starting in Genesis, you get sort of a vague picture of the way God is working to save his people and to save humanity. And as the Bible goes on, it becomes clearer and clearer, and more and more of the picture is filled in, uh, until after we have all of Scripture, we have a, a much clearer picture of what's going on. And so today, we're going to be looking back at the very beginning, the very initial impression that God gives us, the first promise of God to the first sinners. Uh, and by looking that at, back at that earliest revelation of the gospel, through the eyes of, of the rest of scripture, I think that we're going to be able to see four points about the gospel uh, that are going to help us appreciate what is God is doing for his people. And those four points are listed in your bulletin in the outline. 
And you'll see it's God meets grave sin with great grace, number one. Number two, God's grace persists in the face of evil opposition. Number three, evil is real. But number four, Jesus and his people will triumph over evil. So let's start with the first. God meets grave sin with great grace. Um, and as I guess I should read the passage first, shouldn't I? So starting in verse 7 up through 15. <clears throat> then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. And so in the first part of verse 15, which is where we pick up with our text, God says, I will put enmity between you and the woman. And as I said, the the first point of the outline here is God meets grave sin with great grace. So you might be thinking, where is the grace in this verse? Well, at face value, this is a statement perhaps about why people don't like snakes, right? But... And, you know, there'd be some justification for that. The text, if you go back through chapter 3, doesn't actually say that the serpent is anything more than a snake. But we know from later Revelation, particularly Revelation 12.9, that passage that we read today, heard read earlier, that the great dragon in John's vision is called that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. And so we know that this verse is about the relationship in some way about of humanity to the devil, or more broadly, to the evil and sin that the devil is trying to bring into the earth. So what is that relationship between humanity and the devil, as God tells it? Well, in a word, enmity. Um, And if you look at this word in scripture, it's not just dislike. Um, The word is used elsewhere in Ezekiel chapter 25 and 35, where it's equated with making war, a deep hatred, a gulf separating two peoples. For example, in Ezekiel, it's between the Philistines and the Israelites. Um, So in other words, the woman is at odds with Satan. There's a gulf that separates them. And this is good news, right? The enmity thwarts the scheme of the devil, which was to try to win Eve and then Adam over to his side. This is clear from earlier in chapter 3, if you read the rest of the narrative about the temptation of Adam and Eve, uh, where the serpent is using his wiles to try to lure Eve over to his side. And elsewhere, scripture confirms that those who rebel against God are on the side of the devil. In fact, in John chapter 8, when Jesus is speaking about his opponents, uh, the Pharisees, he says, you belong to your father, the devil, 
and you want to carry out your father's desires. Uh, And so it's clear that the devil's goal is to bring humans over to his side, the side of sin and death. But God, in his first word here in verse 15, places enmity between the serpent and the woman. This is a pronouncement that the devil has failed and is failing right from the get-go. The woman will not go over to his side, will not be separated from him, will not be uh, uh, with him warring against God. And so this is the first good news, the great grace with which God meets Adam and Eve's sin. But this raises a question. Why does this verse focus on the woman, on Eve, uh, and not on Adam? It says, enmity between you and the woman. One answer uh, is that Eve is in some sense a representative of all humanity, or at least all followers of God. And this is clear, actually, from verse 20, where uh, Adam names Eve... Uh, Her name actually comes after this passage, where we call her Adam and Eve, but Adam names her right after this. And he he names her Eve because she would become the mother of all the living. So it's safe to say that God's promise is not just limited to Eve, but in some sense extends to all of her descendants. But this is odd because usually, in connection with the fall, if you look throughout the rest of Scripture, Adam is taken as the representative of humanity, not Eve. Eve. 1 Corinthians 5.19 says, For as by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. And the one man there is Adam. Uh, And in fact, if you go back to the New England Primer, which in colonial times in America is how children generally started to learn to read, the very first entry for the letter A in that primer is that by Adam's sin, we sinned all, not by Eve's sin. And the same thing in the Westminster Shorter Catechism, which asks the question, did all mankind fall in Adam's first transgression? And of course the answer is yes. So why is the focus on Eve here back in in the third chapter of Genesis? Well, to answer that question, I want you to consider what has just happened in this narrative. Um, And not as a mythical story or as, you know, just a Bible passage from long ago, but consider it from the perspective of Eve as a real person. Someone who has just committed what must be among the gravest of sins in all of history and who now is racked by shame and guilt. So we see this from the rest of chapter 3. Verse 1, Satan targets Eve in order to make her fall. Verse 6, she draws Adam into sin by offering him a piece of the fruit to eat as well. Verse 7 through 8, she is racked by shame and guilt, which we know because with Adam she tries to hide from God and sow fig leaves over her naked body. Verses 9 through 11, God confronts Adam first with questions about what happened. And how does Adam answer those questions? Well, he points the finger at Eve and blames her. And then verse 13, finally, God confronts Eve herself with questions. And in anguish and guilt, all she can do is point the finger at the serpent and say, well, he tempted me. And then we come to verse 15, God's judgment. At this moment, Eve doesn't yet know what that judgment is going to be. Where is the blame going to fall? Is God going to accept Adam's excuse that it's actually Eve's fault? Is God going to accept her excuse that it's really the serpent? Or is God going to bring all his wrath down on her as, after all, the one who sinned first? But God steps into this hopeless moment. And through his words to the serpent, he says to Eve, no, Here is grace, not judgment. At this moment, because of her great sin, Eve is desperately, hopelessly in need of that grace. 
And he, first in his pronouncements, gives her compassion and love and pronounces to her that the serpent will not succeed. She's not going to be kicked off of God's team and left for Satan. She's still on God's team. And she is the object of his compassion, care, and love. Now, don't misunderstand me. This is not to deny God's judgment. Um, Indeed, in the subsequent verses, immediately after verse 15, the woman will receive a unique and specific judgment for her sin. But it is to say that God grants a particular consolation to the unique pain that Eve would have been feeling on account of her sin at this moment. And he rushes to address it and to proclaim his grace to her. And this is actually a pattern in scripture. God, God treats those who are ashamed and guilty because of their grave sin with great care. Think of Isaiah 42, verse 3, where it says of God's promised servant that a bruised reed he will not break, and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. Or consider Luke 15 and the story of the prodigal son. And when the prodigal son returns to his father after great, great, uh, great sin, having squandered his father's fortune, um, and the father, all he can do is drop everything and run to his son and embrace him. Uh, or consider John 21 after Peter... Uh, One of the disciples had denied Jesus three times. And Jesus shows particular care in restoring him, allowing him three times to pronounce his love for Jesus. This is the God we worship, one who meets grave sin with great grace. Now this has much to say to those of us who, like Eve, have committed grave sin, which is to say all of us. And it has a particular comfort for those of us who believe that our sins are too heinous or too evil to be forgiven. Now, for some sitting here, maybe it's abortion, maybe adultery, maybe divorce, the destruction of your own family through the pursuit of pleasure and your own selfish ends. For others, maybe it's extortion, stealing, or greed. Greed that causes you to oppress others, to become a workaholic, or to neglect your closest relationships. Or for others, maybe it's substance or alcohol abuse or addiction to social media or pornography, selfishly seeking to numb your own pain at the expense of those around you. Whatever our sins, if we think that God's grace cannot or will not address them, we have the example of Eve. Eve, who has just plunged all of humanity into sin, who has committed the original sin, and yet God runs to her with tender care and grace. And so if you are wounded by sin, run to God who is eager to embrace you with his grace. God's first words to the first sinner are grace. And we can approach God in Christ with confidence that the same will be true for us. Now point two, the good news continues. God's grace that we've been talking about persists in the face of opposition. So God says, first I'll put enmity between you and the woman. And then he says, and between your offspring and her offspring. And so we know that enmity will continue with respect to the offspring of the woman and the offspring of the serpent. So the devil's not going to win in round two. He's still going to (laughs) lose. But the battle continues. And we know that Satan will keep trying to win people over to his side, and God will continue to thwart his efforts, and so enmity will remain. But what exactly is meant here by the offspring of the woman and the offspring of the serpent? Well, there's actually a robust debate among commentators about what this means. On the one hand, it could be a collective, meaning all of the descendants of the woman against all of the descendants of the serpent. Or, on the other hand, some commentators say that it refers to a single offspring, some distant heir of the woman and of the serpent. 
And if you've been around Christians or the church at all, you can probably guess that with the individual view, Christ is in view. He is the offspring of the woman. Now, uh, I was talking to Pastor Luke and said, well, I'm giving an Advent sermon about the coming of Christ, so I pretty much have to take the Christ view, right? <laughs> um, and actually, it's a little bit more complicated that, than that as you look into it. So on the side of reading it as a collective, offspring is itself a collective noun in Hebrew. It can refer to many people. Um, and so under the most straightforward reading, the woman's seed represents all of her descendants, and maybe perhaps particularly the people of God descended from her, those who follow him. And the serpent seed represents unbelievers throughout history, uh, those who oppose God's kingdom. And if you look through the rest of scripture, um, there's actually some confirmation for this view, that there, there is a city of God and a city of man that are opposed to each other. First John chapter 3 that we read gives us a picture of this uh, in John's epistle there, where John alludes to this passage when he talks about the people of God as those whose God's seed remains in. And I should mention here, seed is an alternative translation of offspring. That's the same word they're referring to there. Um, so John says, uh, God's seed remains in them. And then he says that the children of God are constantly at war with the children of the devil. So this is kind of picking up that interpretation in the New Testament where John talks about the descendants of the woman and the descendants of Satan being at odds with each other. The same would be true in, in Psalm 1 that contrasts the righteous and the wicked. Or in parables like that of the, the wheat and the tares in Matthew 13, where Jesus makes clear that, that uh, the wheat that is growing up at one day at the day of judgment will be separated into those who are of the people of God and those who are opposed to it. So that's the collective reading. Um, but there's also good reasons to adopt the individual reading. Uh, and in fact, the very next phrase in verse 15 here is, is the first. It says, uh, he shall bruise your head, right? So, and he there is singular. So saying to the serpent, one person, a seed, an offspring of the woman, will bruise your head. Um, and in fact, there's even a, a reason to go beyond that and see Christ in this particular passage. And for that, look again at the phrase, the offspring of the woman. Or as I said, that could be interpreted, the seed of the woman. That's an odd phrase. Women don't generally have seed. Um, they contribute an egg to the reproductive process, right? <laughs> Um, now, to be sure, the, bi the biology of how reproduction works had not been fully worked out in ancient times. Um, back then, people believed that the woman was just a vessel and that the seed of the man was placed in her where it would grow into a child. But regardless, under the ancient understanding or our current day understanding, it's an odd thing to talk about the seed of the woman because women don't generally have seed. So some solve this difficulty by saying that seed really does just mean offspring. And with that kind of metaphorical reading, it can be used of either a man or a woman to speak of their offspring. That's why our version here of the Bible translates it offspring. But if you look at the other places in the Old Testament, oh well, I should say the people who support that reading look at other, the one other place in the Old Testament where the same word is used to describe a woman's offspring. And that comes in Genesis 16 verse 10. And for those of you who have been here through our preaching through Genesis, you may remember this. We had a sermon on this passage not that long ago. And it's about Hagar, who is Abraham's concubine, who he takes in order to try to bear a son because his own wife is barren. And if you remember after that, Hagar is kicked out of his household because of the animosity between Abraham's wife and Hagar. And she retreats into the desert uh, where God meets her and shows his care for her. Um, and so when, when God says to her, I will multiply your seed, right, as a promise to her of his care for her, 
And so the point is when, when the word is used in Genesis chapter 16 there, it's actually used of a single mother, so to speak. Some, a woman who had been kicked out of a household who no longer had uh, a husband, right? Uh, and that's exactly the point, I think, of what's going on here, too. Um, just as the seed of Hagar means the seed of a woman without a man, so, too, the seed of the woman here alludes to the virgin birth of Christ, at least in a vague way. Again, kind of the same way that I saw Pippa's personality on day one of her life. It's not fully spelled out, but there's a suggestion here. <clears throat> so where does this leave us? Is seed collective or singular? And the answer, I think, if you look at all this evidence, is that it's both. It's kind of like saying, uh, well, in 1815, Wellington defeated Napoleon at Waterloo. Right? Now, Wellington and Napoleon never actually saw each other on the battlefield that I'm aware of. They didn't come to fisticuffs. What that means is actually their armies fought each other, and Wellington's army was victorious over Napoleon's army. Same thing here. <clears throat> Christ is definitely in view as the general of our army, but it also has in view the collective people that he will represent throughout all of history. And I think this actually conveys the key meaning of the passage, which is that God's people collectively will all triumph over the children of the devil. But they will do so through Christ, a particular promised offspring of the woman. Now, Moses, helps, as the author of Genesis, helps us to understand how this works by showing us how Adam and Eve and their descendants, the first people to hear this promise, understood it. And in fact, this understanding of the promise creates the drama of the rest of the book of Genesis. So this starts in chapter 4, verse 1 where Eve rejoices over the birth of her firstborn Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord, surely thinking this is the offspring that was promised. But what happens? Of course, Cain and Abel get into a fight, and Cain murders his brother in that chapter, right? So he's not the promised seed. And so in chapter 4, verse 25, Eve rejoices again at the birth of Seth, her next child, saying, God has appointed for me another offspring, same word, another seed, so that her hope can continue. <clears throat> but then, of course, Seth is not the promised seed, and we move forward to the time of the flood when mankind has become so depraved and evil that God is ready to wipe them from the face of the earth. Um, he finds one righteous man, Noah, and so again the line of Eve and the promised seed is perhaps preserved until the time of Abraham. And then Abraham is the one looking for a promised seed, and God actually reiterates the promises to him, saying that I will give you a seed, an offspring, and you will become a great nation. But of course, then Sarah and Abraham are barren. So where is God's promise then? Finally, at an advanced old age, the age of 100, Abraham has his son Isaac. And then in the very next chapter, God orders him to kill Isaac, which plenty of drama all on its own, but among the reasons that's dramatic is you're thinking, God, the promised seed has arrived, and now you're, you're going to kill him. And on and on through the book of Genesis, Rebecca is barren, Isaac's wife. She is not able to have children, and so the promise is threatened again. Finally, by the end of Genesis, we've got the 12 sons of Jacob sitting around his deathbed. They're all candidates to be heirs of the promise, the one through whom the seed will come. And Jacob starts ticking them off. Reuben has sinned too greatly. You're not the one. Simeon has sinned too greatly. You're not the one. Levi has sinned too greatly. You're not the one. And you're thinking, oh no, are we, are we going to lose again? Is there going to be no seed? 
But through his blessings, Jacob promises that a future lion through the tribe of Judah, his fourthborn, will come and finally will triumph over the devil. And so the search continues, actually, through the entire Old Testament. And and I'll I'll zip through it, but the, the promised king of Judah finally comes in the person of David, right? Um, and he rules over a great time of prosperity in Israel's history, but then his descendants don't follow God. The kingdom is divided and eventually exiled to Babylon, and the seed disappears into history. And God's people must be thinking, Lord, when is your promise going to be fulfilled? But of course, the hope of Christmas and of the Advent season is that the promise has not failed. Jesus does come as the seed of the woman who will be victorious over the serpent. So throughout all of that time, thousands of years, God's promise of grace persists in the face of evil opposition. God does not grow weary of fulfilling his promises in his own time. His grace continues. And so if you're tempted to think that, you know, grace is only temporary in your life, you know, maybe I can repent once and God will forgive me, but then surely after that, I have to live up to his standards in order to make him happy. That's not the picture of grace that we get in the Bible. God's grace persists, and we can return to him forgiveness for forgiveness again and again and again. So it would be nice if that would be the end of the story, but there's actually two more points. And the third is, I think, particularly hard, which is that evil is real. So the passage goes on and says, <clears throat> the seed... Of the, the serpent will bruise the heel of the seed of the woman. Now, that's an odd phrase to say that the serpent will bruise the heel of the seed of the woman. Maybe it's an idiom of some kind from ancient Hebrew. But at a minimum, it's clear that this means that the serpent will continue to inflict pain and suffering and even death on the seed of the woman. And of course, this most obviously occurs in the death of Christ on the cross. As Isaiah said, by his wounds we are healed. So our sins require Christ's suffering. But remember, again, because the seed of the woman means both Christ and his people, it must also mean that the serpent will inflict pain on God's people throughout history. And so we are in line to suffer too. This is a consequence of the fall and of Satan's opposition to us. Despite Christ's victory, the fall, and the sin it produced in us, uh, despite Christ's victory, the fall and the sin it produces create genuine evil suffering in our life. Now, this is an important point that is um, sometimes misunderstood. So as Reformed Christians, after all, we believe that God is all-powerful and supremely good, and so the sort of logical, obvious conclusion from that is that God must use his power to create the best of all possible worlds. And therefore, if you suffer, the thinking goes, you really just need to suck it up because, after all, God is in charge and he's arranged everything in the best possible way. So your suffering must be for the best. Now, this view has been ridiculed throughout history, and justly so. Um, The philosopher Voltaire satirized it during the Enlightenment in his work, Candide. Uh, And it really wasn't too hard to satirize, right? All he did was describe the suffering of the people of Lisbon after the great earthquake that it occurred and destroyed the entire city. Uh, Simply to say, is this the God that you believe in whose best of all possible worlds includes this kind of suffering? And this has been used as a potent argument against Christianity ever since. Um, It's part of the supposed idea floating around in our age 
that the rationality of the Enlightenment has swept away the naive views of the Bible. But is this view really the view of the Bible? That suffering and evil aren't really things that need to be reckoned with because Christ triumphed and we already live in the best world possible? In a word, no. <laughs> uh, or at the very least, this way of putting things does not reflect the whole counsel of Scripture. Yes, God is sovereign. Yes, God is in charge. And yes, nothing happens that God does not uphold, direct, dispose, and govern. But this verse teaches us, nonetheless, that suffering is real. We who are in Christ will have our heel bruised. This is demonstrated even more clearly in Jesus' own life in John chapter 11, where his close friend Lazarus dies. And if you know the, the rest of the story, you know that just a few verses later, Jesus raises him from the dead. So what reason is there to be sad? But nonetheless, Jesus weeps, right? John tells us. His suffering was real, and so too is ours. We must remember that even Christians, maybe especially Christians, are wounded in the fight. They are wounded by sin, their own, and the sin of others. And so it is okay to mourn when our loved ones fall sick and die, when tragedy strikes. We need not just tell ourselves that this is what God ordained, and so we have to accept it. <clears throat> Death is not the way the world is supposed to be. Death came through sin, and it leaves a mark on us. As in so many places, the author J.R.R. Tolkien understood this point and helped us to grasp it through his stories. So you may remember the hobbit Frodo, who spends uh, the entire series, the entire book, going on an adventure in order to save his homeland, the Shire that he loves. And finally, the quest is successful, and upon his return, you think, great, he's going to be able to enjoy a comfortable retirement in the land that he loves. But it turns out that the wounds that he has suffered along the way on the journey are too great, and the evil that he has witnessed is, is, is too severe, so that he can never fully be healed and go back to the way things were. He can only ever be healed by looking forward to the undying lands, which is Tolkien's picture of the new heavens and the new earth that God is bringing at the end of time. And so like Frodo, we should not be afraid to acknowledge that we have been harmed by evil. Um, we can't paper that over that with glib sayings about this being the best possible world that God has given us. <clears throat> but finally, and fortunately, the fourth point, this is not the end of the story. Yes, evil is real, but Jesus and his people will triumph over evil. And so if you look again at verse 15, we see, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring, he, your, meaning Eve's offspring, shall bruise your head, the serpent. Right? And of course, it's much worse to have your head bruised than your ankle. So this is, a, this is a sign that the offspring of the woman will win this battle, ultimately. That is, the seed of the woman will crush Satan. There will be his complete and utter demise, the defeat of the death that he brings, and the reversal of the fall into sin, and the curse that Adam and Eve are to receive. So how do we know, again, that this is, this is what the verse is speaking of? Well, Adam actually understood this immediately. <clears throat> and if you look at verse 20, it says, The man called his wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all the living. And this is a remarkable thing for Adam to say right at that moment. If you look at the immediately preceding verse, verse 19, God has just told Adam that you are dust, and to dust you will return. 
meaning you will die. And Adam's response is immediately to say, okay, I'm going to die, but I'm going to call my wife the wife of the living, my, my wife the, the mother of all the living. So because of what God has said back in verse 15, Adam knows that death is not going to be the final story. It's not going to define her. Adam understood the promise of grace that came before God's judgment, the promise that ultimately death would be destroyed and the woman's seed would triumph, and that as a result, the woman would live, not die. To be sure, he understood this only the way that I understood Pippa's personality on the first day of her life, uh, vaguely. But he understood it enough to place his hope in it. So sometimes people wonder uh, how or whether God saves people in the Old Testament. Obviously, Christ wasn't around, and so they couldn't put their trust in him. But they could put their trust in God's promises, given here at the very beginning of history to the first sinners. And through that, God is able to save his people in all times and places. And of course, the promise of victory over death is made more clear for us later on as we get more revelation. Um, And it's one of the best passages is what we read from Revelation 12 earlier today. That spells out the victory of Christ and his church over Satan. Now, of course, although this promise is more clear to us today, it is still not fully fulfilled. And this point should be obvious if you just look around and see the suffering and death that is still in the world. So you might ask, when is this final victory going to occur? And the answer comes from the last New Testament passage that we'll talk about that references our text. And it's Romans chapter 16, verse 20. Paul here is giving his final salutations to the Romans in the letter. Uh, And in doing so, he alludes back to this passage, and he says to the church in Rome, by way of encouragement to them, quote, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. So although we don't know the exact time, we know that this is going to happen soon. And in fact, as Pastor Luke alluded to already, this is one of the main points of the season of Advent. Right? Have you ever thought about this? Advent is meant to look forward to Christmas, but Christmas already happened. Christ came 2,000 years ago, right? So what are we looking forward to during the season of Advent? And the answer is we are looking forward to this final victory of Christ, longing for the fulfillment of the promise that we have starting here in Genesis chapter 3. And so this Advent season... I urge you to long for the full victory of Christ over sin and over the devil. Use this time for God to work into your lives, to acknowledge the pain that exists, that evil is real, that there is suffering, but that we can look forward to a time when Christ will come to wipe away every tear from our eyes, a time when death shall be no more, and there will be no more mourning, nor crying, nor pain. Jesus is coming soon, and so we pray, come quickly, Lord Jesus. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this time that we've had to look into your word. Um, You promised that your word will not return to you empty, and we pray that now, that you would use this message to draw people to you, to help the gospel, to work deeply in our sinful lives, um, to bring us to repentance, and to bring us in trust of you, so that we can use this Advent season, Lord, to rest in your promises of forgiveness and grace, and of ultimate victory over the serpent. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.